Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 8, The Dark Age, and Homeric Society. Following the destruction of the Mycenaean Bronze Age culture, Greece descended into a period of oblivion and obscurity for several hundreds of years, known as the Dark Age, so aptly named because the fortunes of the Greeks during this time seems generally dark, at least compared to their Mycenaean ancestors. Likewise, our understanding of this period is also generally dark. In any event, as the tribal Dorians preferred to pursue a simple life of agriculture instead of trade, Mycenaean citadels were reduced to rubble, and the Bronze Age economy advances of the palaces and their widespread Mediterranean trade network were all lost. Although there were some signs of continuity in art with pottery, there were no more wall paintings, and there was a loss of monumental architecture because it was a huge expenditure to quarry, cut, and lift the stone needed on that scale. So our evidence of this period is very scanty. Basically, all we have to go by in order to make theories about what was happening are the contents found in burials. But even those don't fully explain what was going on. There is no doubt that there was widespread cultural decline taking place. No luxury goods have been found in the tombs dating to this period, reflecting a severe contraction in material culture and standard of living. Craftsmen had nobody to work for anymore, so the technology simply dropped away. Greek writing in the form of Mycenaean Linear B tablets disappeared, reflecting both a lack of goods to keep a tally of and the lack of a desire to keep records. Despite the disappearance of the political and economic systems of the Mycenaeans, everything that mattered in daily life at the household and village level continued without interruption. They continued to grow their crops, and life for most people at that time was still probably solitary, poor, and short. We also should not imagine that some enormous gulf separated the culture of Bronze Age Greece from that of the Dark Age. The details may remain difficult to discern, but there is no doubt that in these centuries the Greeks laid the foundations for the values, traditions, and new forms of social and political organization that would characterize them in later ages. So what archaeological evidence do we have for this period? Well, for the most part, simple shaft graves were common throughout Greece now. However, cremation became increasingly more common and, in fact, was the primary method of burial in Attica. Because of this, there became a need for more pottery production to hold the ashes. Luckily for us, the Greeks continued to take the art of making and painting vases very seriously, and so it helps us chart somewhat the general course of decline and recovery. In fact, the sub-periods of the Dark Age are named after the stages of pottery. Those dating from around 1125 to 1050 BC, the low point in the aftermath of the destructions, is called Sub-Mycenaean, since it is still recognizably Mycenaean, but much inferior in quality. Localism can be seen in which the pots had characteristics for each city-state, not a unifying Mycenaean culture, as we had seen before. Although the Greek potters tried to replicate the shapes and decorations that had been used by their ancestors, they are much smaller poorly formed, and poorly fired. The motifs are clumsy and irregular, yet these pots were the main objects of the sub-Mycenaean graves. However, even these aren't in abundance. For example, only 160 vases were found in 220 graves in Athens and Salamis, former Bronze Age sites that were not destroyed or abandoned. Other sites where this style of pottery has been found are Corinth, Tyrants, a few other sites in the Argolid and Boeotia, and Lefkandi on Euboea. Comparatively speaking, 
The evidence thus suggests that this society was in a deep depression, both economically and culturally. Hand in hand with these economic and cultural changes, Greek population also suffered a huge drop during this period, with archaeological studies showing that 340 mainland settlements during the Mycenaean civilization had shrunk down to just 40. That's almost 90%, which is a precipitous, almost inconceivable depopulation. The population of Greece at the end of the 11th century BC was probably the lowest it had been since the Indo-European migrations. The loss of population is not fully understood, but it seems to have been at least partly due to the collapse of the palace economy. One explanation blames the mountainous landscape of Greece. In order to perform agriculture in the mountains, the Greeks had to do terracing by cutting into the side of the mountain to create flat places, where vegetation could be grown. But terraces required constant maintenance. Once society collapsed, the palatial-owned terraces went into disrepair, and the kind of agriculture needed to support the populations around the citadel was extremely difficult, almost impossible. Thus, in the absence of the redistribution system and trade, agricultural production suffered drastically, and many settlements couldn't survive relying on their local resources only. Combined with the insecure conditions brought on by violence, this in turn led to mass migrations of Greeks to presumably more secure places on the western coast of Anatolia and most of the islands near to it. Because with the collapse of the Hittites, it seems there was a huge vacuum and opportunity in Anatolia. However, we shouldn't look at this as a huge massive migration, but movements throughout several decades. Archaeology confirms that migrations probably began sometime around 1050 BC. This is known as the Great Period of Greek Settlement in Asia Minor, and has been determined by studying the linguistic map of the two areas during the historical period. First and foremost, some speakers of the Mycenaean world were displaced to Cyprus, while others remained inland in Arcadia, as was previously mentioned last episode. This gave rise to the Arcado-Cypriot dialect, which is the only dialect with a known Bronze Age precedent. The northern section of the Anatolian coast and the island of Lesbos were inhabited by people from Thessaly and Boeotia. They spoke the Aeolic dialect of Greek, and the area became known as Aeolus. Those who had fled to Athens during the chaos, since it was able to withstand destruction, were given refuge before migrating to the central part of the western coast of Anatolia, which they called Ionia. These people, along with those of Attica, spoke the Ionian dialect. Homeric Greek would be a blending of Ionic and Aeolic features. Attic Greek, a subset of Ionic, would be the language of Athens because Attic was adopted in Macedon before the conquests of Alexander the Great and the subsequent rise of Hellenism, it became the standard dialect that evolved into Koine, or common. This will be covered much, much later. In later times, despite their dislocation, these Ionian Greeks on the Anatolian mainland strove to maintain their cultural and linguistic ties with their mainland Greek brethren. These Ionians established fine cities, with good harbors on Anatolia and its neighboring islands. They were well-placed for trade. For example, Chios and Samos could control the sea route along the coast from north to south, and Ephesus and Miletus lay at the end of the important trade routes down the rivers Kestros and Myandros. Therefore, it is not surprising that Ionia was to become for some time the most prosperous and civilized part of the Greek world. Northwestern Greek and Macedonian are sometimes classified as a separate dialect, while sometimes it is subsumed under Doric. 
Doric itself is subdivided into Doric proper and Achaean Doric, in the region of Achaea on the northern coast of the Peloponnese. Some of the Dorians also took to the sea, as the southern Aegean islands of Crete, Milos, Thera, Kos, and Rhodes all spoke the Doric dialect, as well as settlements on the southern portion of the coast, like Nidos and Halicarnassus. On Crete, according to tradition, the existing Mycenaean inhabitants were used as field workers, and the few existing Minoans, called Idiocretans, or True Cretans, fled into the eastern mountains. This small community would be cut off from the rest of the Greek world for centuries, but would also preserve many traditions for what it was to be Cretan, including shrines and another undeciphered writing script, also called Idiocretan. It could be related to Linear A, but since both are untranslated, it is not certain. However, there are signs of recovery even when the material culture seems to be at its lowest. As significant changes begin to take place during this period, in metallurgical and agricultural technology, advances that would eventually help bring about the end of the Dark Age. To illustrate this, let's examine burial findings at Athens from this time period. Inside the pit was a clay pot to hold the cremated remains of a male. Surrounding the pot were metal weapons, including a long sword, spearheads, and knives. The inclusion of weapons of war was a continuation of the burial traditions of the Mycenaeans. But these weapons were forged from iron, not bronze. This difference reflects a significant shift in metallurgy that was taking place throughout the Mediterranean at the turn of the millennium. For this reason, following the standard method of labeling periods of history by the name of the metal most used, the Dark Age can also be referred to as the Early Iron Age in Greece. The Greeks mastered the difficult process of smelting and working iron, which produced weapons and tools that were harder than those made of bronze and kept their edge better which was especially important for agricultural tools, swords, and spear points, although bronze remained in use for shields and armor. Although Greece is fairly abundant in iron ore, and the technology for smelting it was long known in the Near East, the Mycenaean Greeks had preferred to import copper and tin for bronze. But with the collapse of their trade network, the Greeks were forced to iron out of necessity. From about 1050 BC onward, Small local iron industries began to develop across the mainland and the islands, and archaeology shows that by around 900 BC, most of the weapons and tools were being made of iron. Furthermore, renewed artistic vigor can be seen in the pottery of the proto-geometric style from around 1050 to 900 BC, so-called because the designs are simple, abstract geometric shapes like horizontal and wavy lines, circles, and semicircles within horizontal bands around the neck and belly. It seems to have originated in Attica and very quickly spread into other areas. These vases are better proportioned, slimmer, and less squat. The drawings now were fitting the shapes of the vases more aesthetically than before. The overall effect is one of balance, order, and symmetry. These refinements were partly a result of advances in technology. Potters had developed a faster wheel which allowed them to increase the size of the vases, and therefore the area available for decoration. Some of the common vases included the amphora, for storage, the crater, for mixing wine and water, and the anoki, for pouring. Also, artists no longer drew their lines in circles freehand, but with rulers and compasses. Moreover, they prepared the clay better, and achieved a finer glaze by firing at higher temperatures. Population slowly began to inch upward. Dark Age sites were considered prominent if they held more than 200 people, while the normal-sized sites contained between 20 to 40.
Many of these sites had been abandoned in the 12th century BC and left uninhabited for several generations before being re-inhabited on a much smaller scale in the proto-geometric period. A few major settlements, like Athens or Corinth, may have had populations of a thousand or more. However, because such places have been continuously inhabited and built over, there is no way to judge their size or growth in the Dark Age without stripping away the modern buildings or demolishing the excavated classical structures, which is definitely not something we'd want to do at Athens or Corinth. Although recovery was slow and its pace varied from region to region, progress was steady. Abandoned villages came back to life, and although they were few and small, settlements began to appear. Communication improved as well, both between the various regions of Greece and with the Near East. Foreign trade resumed after two to three centuries, though at a much reduced level. By the 10th century BC, the major movements of people into and out of Greece had halted, and Greece started to achieve some sense of stability. Greek civilization stood at the threshold of a new era. With the dissolution of the palace complexes, the former centers and peripheral villages found themselves largely on their own politically and economically. The Greeks became more local and lost that Mycenaean unity. With the decline in population, land was plentiful for farming. These self-sufficient farming communities reverted to small chiefdoms that were run by local chiefs, similar to the type of organization that had existed in the early Bronze Age, before the consolidation of power by a single ruler. The rule of a chieftain seldom extended further than over their extended family, a far cry from the heights of the Mycenaean kingdoms. The graves and building remains from the 11th and 10th centuries BC show little social differentiation, as wealth was probably measured in the humble currencies of cattle, sheep, and pigs. The Mycenaean Linear B tablets provide an important clue to the process of decentralization in Greece. As we saw in episode 6, the tablets reference the title Pasiru, which seems to have belonged to a minor official, who functioned as a sort of mayor of a town or village. Well, the title Pasirhu survived into the Dark Age, written in the later Greek alphabet as Basileus. It appears that when the Mycenaean palaces fell, these Basileis, which is the plural, stepped up to head their villages and surrounding farmlands. But these men were not kings, but chiefs, as they had far less power than a king. Nevertheless, the Basileus had great stature and importance in his community. Recent excavations have revealed early Dark Age sites that provide us further insight into social hierarchy in Dark Age Greece. Especially noteworthy is the site of Nicoria, located in the southwestern Peloponnesus. It had been occupied in the Bronze Age as a subsidiary in the Kingdom of Pylos, but was abandoned in the Late Bronze Age around the time Pylos was burned. It was then resettled shortly thereafter as a much smaller village, whose population maxed out at about 200 with around 40 families. In the main population cluster, archaeologists uncovered a large building, about 35 feet long and 23 feet wide, consisting of one large room and a small porch. They identified it as the Basileus' house. Although it was much larger and better constructed than the other houses, it was the same shape and made of the same materials. Its floor was packed earth and its walls were made of mud brick supported by a thatched roof that extended over the shallow front porch. The Basileus' house may also have had some communal functions. It has been suggested that they served as the religious center of the settlement, and perhaps as a communal storehouse. In any event, their differentiated homes reveal that Dark Age Basileus were important persons in the village, 
yet it is clear that they lived in a style that was hardly different from that of their neighbors. Coastal Anatolia was the location of the mythic Trojan War. So centuries later, the descendants of these two great civilizations were living side by side and came to share a common sense of history, as heirs to the mighty Bronze Age civilizations, of which virtually nothing remained, except heroic stories and mysterious ruins. The legacy of Mycenaean culture was preserved through these legends passed down orally, probably beginning around 1100 BC. Without written tablets to double-check the facts, these stories were molded over time, so the truth is hard to decipher. They knew about a previous age in which men were heroes that were bigger, stronger, faster, and tougher. Finally, according to tradition, these legends, called the Iliad and the Odyssey, were written down for the first time between 850 and 750 BC by a man named Homer. These poems do not narrate the entirety of the Trojan War, as the Iliad compresses the action into about 40 days in the last year of the war, and the Odyssey tells about the return home of one warrior chief, Odysseus. The poems thus assume that their audience knew the rest of the plots and actions. In the 7th and 6th centuries BC, an epic cycle of separate and shorter poems were constructed, completing the story of Troy. They narrate the events leading up to the war, the events during the war, the sacking of Troy, and the return home of other Greek chiefs. Also, a series of cultic hymns attached to specific deities, such as Demeter and Apollo, were also written. All of these have been attributed to Homer, although scholars question his authorship on many of them. People of that time also argued over where Homer was from. One of the Homeric hymns refers to a blind poet of Chios, an island off the southwestern coast of Asia Minor. So that has been interpreted as the location of Homer who many think was a blind bard. Others think he was a citizen of the Ionian Greek city of Smyrna. Thus, the Homeric question centers on the modern speculation about whether this man actually existed, and which world does the poems of Homer actually refer to? Is it the Mycenaean Bronze Age, the Dark Ages, or the transition into the Archaic period, when these poems were written? Also, can we find any historical accuracies in these poems at all? However, it is vain to look for any consistent patterns to determine which period Homer is trying to portray, because while Homer accurately depicts many aspects of Mycenaean society, he also gets things very wrong. For instance, archaeology has revealed how accurately he describes the palaces, the ruins of which may have been still sticking out of the ground in his time. The armor and weapons that Homer describes are mostly bronze, not iron. Chariots are being employed the use of which didn't survive into the Dark Age. In Homer's description of the catalog of ships, the Greek hometowns have been proved as accurate. But on the other hand, there's a difference in the shapes of weapons found in Mycenaean graves and those described by Homer. The spear in Homer is primarily used for throwing, but the Mycenaeans used it to jab. There's no evidence that the Mycenaeans built temples or made large cult statues, but they're found in Homer. The Mycenaeans buried their dead in the ground, but the Greeks of Homer incinerate at their bodies, as the Iliad ends with the cremation of the dead Patrocles on a funeral pyre. There is no mention in Homer of the great Tholos tombs. Therefore, these elaborate Mycenaean tombs must have been inaccessible during the Dark Age, leading to that memory dying out. The kings of Homer are relatively weak and poor compared to the illustriousness of the graves of the kings at Mycenae. In terms of the material world and social customs, the poems seem to represent 
an amalgamation of Mycenaean Bronze Age culture and the Dark Age world. Scholars believe that these discrepancies can be attributed to the way the poems were constructed and presented. The question is, how can one man construct such massive stories? Roughly speaking, the Iliad is 18,000 lines and the Odyssey is 12,000 lines. In dactylic hexameter, commit them to memory and repeat them enough times that one day enough people will remember them well enough to write them down verbatim. This all sounds a bit far-fetched, which is why some have theorized that Homer wasn't one man, but several poets, each adding to the other's work. The theory goes that the epic poems were thus passed down orally through many centuries, being recited by traveling bards to large audiences around the Greek countryside, yearning for the good old days. They would be recited to the accompaniment of the lyre at a feast or a religious festival, the basis of which are the descriptions in Homer of such recitals, in which guests are entertained at the end of a feast. This theory is almost universally agreed upon today because of a young classical scholar named Milman Perry. In the 1930s, he traveled to the former Yugoslavia, listening to many traveling, illiterate bards composing the same Slavic epic hero story. He and his co-worker, Albert Lord, made phonograph records of each and discovered that each one turned out to be slightly different. As it turned out, the poets had not memorized their poems, but were recomposing the story with some aspects being added or subtracted in order to adjust to each audience. This was possible because the story content was well known by everyone and was recited in a highly formalized style. Likewise, Perry concluded that the Homeric poems had been created in a similar manner. He believed Homer was simply the greatest in a long succession of oral poets, who had learned the difficult craft of oral composition from the previous generation, who in turn had learned it from their elders and so on. In retelling the ancient stories, which would have been familiar to the audiences, Homer drew upon the constant repetition of epithets, stock phrases, lines, and blocks of text in his descriptions of people, things, places, and events, which naturally recur many times in the long stories. Almost everyone or everything had an epithet. Odysseus is usually the cunning Odysseus. The king of the gods is Zeus the cloud gatherer, or Zeus of the thunderbolt. And Athena is gray-eyed Athena, and so forth. In around 28,000 lines of poetry, it has been calculated that there are around 25,000 repeated phrases, and they are among the first things a reader notices coming to the poems for the first time. This special poetic language greatly eased the task of the bard, since he would lengthen a simple word into an entire sentence, freeing himself from the need to think about each individual word and allowing him to concentrate on what was to come next. For instance, Homer didn't just say that Achilles met Hector and killed him, because it's just too quick. He says that swift-footed Achilles, son of Peleus, king of the Myrmidons, met Hector, son of Priam, at the base of high-walled Troy, in battle. Also, he didn't just say that the Greeks set ships on the sea and sailed off, but describes it as the loud-roaring sea, or the wine-dark sea. A new day is often introduced by the line, and when early-born rose-fingered dawn appeared. Perry believed that these mythoi were constructed sometime in the late Mycenaean Bronze Age, and were continuously edited until they reached Homer in the 8th century BC, which would explain both the similarities and the differences between the two worlds. Even though there is almost universal agreement on this theory, there is definitely not universal agreement on the nature of Homer. Some scholars have argued that an illiterate bard named Homer dictated his epics to persons who could write. Some believe it was composed by a woman, 
because the epics are especially sensitive to women. Others believe that Homer was actually a made-up person, and that the real authors were generations of anonymous editors who collected, expanded, and elaborated on the traditional oral songs before their final form was immortalized in the 6th century BC in Athens. They were thus attributed to someone named Homer from previous generations to give these poems a mythic origin. Piggybacking off of this, some specifically attributed the poems to a guild of rhapsodes, which literally means singers of stitched words, on the island of Chios, called the Homeridae, who claimed descent from Homer and maintained the tradition of transmitting his epic poems orally during the late 6th to 4th centuries BC, after which nothing more was heard of them. However, since the existence of the Homeridae is authenticated by various contemporary sources, while that of Homer is not, and since the Greek word Homerus is a common noun meaning hostage, it has been suggested even in ancient times that the Homeridae were in reality descendants of hostages. The natural further step is to argue that Homer, the supposed founder, is a mythical figure, a mere back formation, deriving his name from that of the later guild. In any event, let's take a look at the poems to see what, if anything, they can tell us about the society they are depicting. Because of Homer's political structure description, the majority of scholars believe that the poems describe the 10th and 9th centuries BC, not the late Bronze Age. Going off this assumption, the poems can provide a wealth of detail about late Dark Age society, a few generations earlier to the traditional Homer's lifetime. Homeric society resembles both in its general structure and in many of its details the type of social organization that anthropologists call a chiefdom. But we also must keep in mind that it is naturally a distortion. The oral poets were recreating an imaginary past that was in every way better and grander than their contemporary world. Nevertheless, aspects of that imagined world, especially its social institutions and ideologies, must have been based on the audience's real-life experience in order for them to make sense of the action and relate to the characters and their motivations. For example, the front court of Odysseus's residence contains a large pile of manure, as well as geese and ewes. Inside, the floors are made of packed earth, and the megaron is blackened with soot from the smoky central hearth. This is a far cry from the grandiose palaces of the Mycenaean kings, as his palace is far more like the house of the Basileus of the Dark Age, Nicoria, than the excavated palace of the King of Bronze Age, Pylos. The geographical and political map of Homer consists of distinct regions and people. They are laid out in the catalog of ships in the Iliad. As we mentioned earlier, the villages Homer listed have proved to be very accurate. But these Dark Age sites are also very different from their Mycenaean counterpart. In the Linear B tablets, a village community was called Damos. But in Homer we see Demos, and it refers not only to the village community, but also the people who live in it and the rulers of these sites were much different than their Bronze Age counterparts as well. There are two key terms for rulers in Homer, Wanox and Basileos. Thanks to the Linear B tablets, we know that all Mycenaean kings were titled Wanox. But in Homer, only Agamemnon receives this title, since he is the head of the expedition to Troy. All of the other Achaean kings are referred to as Basileos, which can be translated as simply king, However, if Agamemnon wasn't killed by his wife, Clytemnestra, after the war, he probably would have reverted back to the title of Basileus, like all the other local rulers. Agamemnon had the power to call a meeting of the assembly, but so did the other kings. These kings were relatively poor by the Mycenaean standard of kings. According to Homer, their role was to supervise agricultural production, and they even bragged about the cities they plundered and sacked, meaning piracy. 
Odysseus didn't take offense when he was asked if he was a pirate, but he did when the Phokians asked him if he was a merchant. Also, Mycenaean kings had officials to handle the overseeing of agricultural duties for them. Furthermore, in the Dark Age society, there were no grandiose tombs like that of the Mycenaean Bronze Age. The tombs of the nobles were the same as the commoners, since there were not great riches without an outstanding monarch. The Iliad portrays the change of social structure that took place in the Dark Ages, from a monarchic society into an aristocratic one. Because epic poetry concentrates almost exclusively on the activities of the Basileis and their families, largely ignoring the mass of the ordinary people, they provide a fairly detailed description of chieftainship. As is common among chieftain societies, the office and title of Basileus passed from father to son, but inheritance alone is not enough, as the young chief must be competent to fulfill his role by leading his people in war and peace, and to secure the backing of the other local chiefs in his demos. In doing so, the two requisites for leadership, skill in battle, and the ability to persuade, are best seen in the advice that the Basileus of the Myrmidons, Haleus, gives to his young son Achilles as he sends him off to the Trojan War. Be both a speaker of words and a doer of deeds. A chief's status is measured by the number of warriors who followed. For example, Agamemnon was acknowledged as the leader of the entire Greek army because he had 100 ships, which was by far the most troops. All Basileis have their own personal followers, called Hatiroi. An army of Edemos is composed of several individual Hatiroi bands, each under the command of its own Basileus, and all under command of the most powerful Basileus, who had the most followers. The entire fighting force was mustered together, probably only in defense of the Demos. Otherwise, the individual bands of Hatiroi would go on raiding expeditions against villages of another Demos to plunder their livestock, valuables, and women. Commonly, Abasileus recruited his followers with a large feast, showing that he is a generous leader, and thereby binding his followers to him. For instance, Odysseus, posing as a warrior leader from Crete, describes a raiding expedition into Egypt, after which they feasted for six days, and then he set sail back for Crete. A son's inheritance to Basileus is not an absolute guarantee to succession. In a society where performance is more important than descent, a weak successor could be challenged. In the Odyssey, as the Basileus of Ithaca, Odysseus had been gone twenty years, ten in Troy and ten on the seas. His son Telemachus, who is barely twenty years old, with no experience of leadership and few supporters, as his father's Atiroi had gone along to Troy with him, finds himself in a succession crisis. Many are wooing his mother and presumed widow, Penelope. They are camped out in his courtyard, feasting on his livestock and seducing the slave girls. They have no scruples about taking Telemachus's birthright away from him. They even threat bodily harm on Telemachus. But like Odysseus, Penelope was cunning and resourceful. She holds the suitors at bay by telling them that she will marry one of them only when she had completed a burial shroud for her father-in-law. Well, by day she weaves, and at night she secretly unravels the shroud. It is fortunate for Odysseus that he arrives back in Ithaca before his authority and wealth are completely gone. He enters his palace disguised as a beggar, kills all of the suitors, and assembles his rightful place as Basileus of Ithaca. But in most cases, however, a weakened, ruling dynasty would not have fared as well. Raiding was a way of life in Homeric society. They not only enriched the Basileus and his men, but also served as a test of their manliness, skill, and courage, and thus brought honor and glory. The Basileus was obligated to risk his life fighting at the front of his army 
a custom that persisted throughout Greek history. In return for his leadership, the Basileus receives the largest apportionment of the booty. Then, special rewards for valor are given out to certain individuals. The rest is then divided up among the men equally. A greedy Basileus who takes more than he deserves, or distributes unfairly, risks losing the respect of his followers. This idea can be seen right from the beginning in the Iliad, which begins with a quarrel amongst two noblemen, Agamemnon and Achilles. The Greeks were being ravaged by a plague, and a seer tells the Basileus that Apollo is angry because when they sacked a neighboring Trojan ally, Agamemnon kidnapped a maiden named Chryseis, who was the daughter of a priest of Apollo. Achilles tells Agamemnon that he should give the girl back. This infuriates Agamemnon, the Basilutatis, the most kingly as Homer describes. But it wasn't seen as out of line because both are kings. Agamemnon decides to give back the girl, but he decides to take a girl named Briseis from Achilles' compensation. This infuriates Achilles, as he took it as an insult to his honor, that his shares in the victory were taken away from him, and he is only restrained from physically attacking Agamemnon by the goddess Athena. He retreats to his tent, where he takes off his armor and sulks in his tent for the next nine books, which turns out to be a serious problem for the Greeks. This is the famous Wrath of Achilles. But this event is significant in another regard, because although Agamemnon has the final say, Decisions were made in the army through discussions of the nobles. He didn't just issue orders and everybody was obligated to follow. Likewise, in the Odyssey, there are several occasions when Odysseus's Hetairoi simply refused to obey him. Once, when his followers decided to do the opposite of that which he ordered them to do. Odysseus even says that he has to abide by the will of the many. Odysseus's helplessness illustrates the fundamental fragility of leadership authority in this type of low-level chieftainship. All of the Basileus, for Demos, would meet together and formulate policy. It would be presided over by the Basileus with the most followers. He would have the determining voice in the discussions, but usually listen to the advice and counsel of everyone else. Ordinary soldiers were not allowed to attend these meetings, however. A key social distinction is made in the Dark Ages between the nobility and the commoners, not between the king and everyone else any longer. They then would present their decision to a separate assembly of the soldiers. Customarily, only the Basileus spoke, however. The common soldiers either gave their approval with shouts or disapproval with silence. In the Iliad, after Achilles withdrawals from fighting and terrible things began to occur to the Greek camp, Agamemnon tests the spirit of his men by telling them that they should give up and go home. The troops take off towards the ships, but as they were running back, Odysseus stops them. Then, a common soldier, named Thersides, steps up and makes a speech denouncing Agamemnon, calling him a greedy bully, basically. He says the soldiers have had enough and want to go home. These are the same insults that Achilles had hurled at Agamemnon before, but Thersides was not a nobleman, so Odysseus smashes him in the back with his scepter, not only because he thought he was a coward, but because he had no right to address the nobles. He crossed the sharp social line developed during Dark Age society. Oddly enough, instead of expressing sympathy, the other Greek soldiers cheer on Odysseus. Maybe it's because they understand their role, or maybe they just thought Thersides was a coward too. The Basileus also had a religious and judicial role in his community. He led the prayer over the public sacrifices to the gods as a sort of spokesman for the people. He was not, however, one of the priests nor did he claim to be chosen by the gods. 
although Homer firmly emphasizes that his authority is upheld by Zeus. During the Dark Age, these basileis probably played a small role in judicial matters, as the judicial process was in an early stage of development. Laws were not recorded yet. The only standard was the community's traditions regarding what is right and wrong in particular situations. Disputes were often settled between families. If no agreement could be made, then the issue was brought before a court. Homer describes a dispute over the payment for murder compensation, which was heard and decided by a group of elders. The lawsuit takes place in an assembly, with the people being able to view it. The council assembly and law court would become more highly evolved in later centuries. Diplomatic relations between one chiefdom and another were conducted by the chiefs themselves or a trusted companion. As part of his training, Odysseus was sent at a young age to Messenia by his father and the other elders on an embassy to collect a debt owed to the Ithacans. This was a serious affair, for the Messenians had raided Ithaca and stolen 300 sheep. If negotiations failed, the Ithacans would stage a revenge raid and the bad feelings would likely escalate into an all-out war. While he was in Messenia, young Odysseus stayed at the house of a guest friend, or Xenos. Guest friendship, Xenia, was a reciprocal friendship in which Xenoi were pledged to each other's demos. The relationship was handed down from generation to generation between the families of Xenoi. Many years later, Odysseus's son Telemachus would stay overnight with the son of the same family, on his way to visit Menelaus in Sparta, and again on the return trip. Xenia had to be respected no matter what the situation. In the Iliad, for example, as the Greek Diomedes prepares to battle a Trojan warrior named Glaucus, he discovers that Glaucus's grandfather once hosted his own grandfather as a guest friend while he was traveling abroad in Glaucus's land. The long past act of hospitality had established ties of friendship between the families and had to be respected even in the heat of battle. Therefore, Diomedes says, Let us not use our spears against each other. There are many other Trojans and their allies for me to kill, the gods willing, and many other Greeks for you to slay if you can. The guest host was required to let the stranger in to bathe and rest, to take care of any immediate needs, and to prepare them a meal. Normally a traveler stayed at someone's home of the same social level. If they were wealthy, there usually was a lavish feast, with general conversation, wine, and musical entertainment. Then the host would pose the questions, who are you, where are you from, and what is your story? It was the responsibility of the guest to do no harm to the host, answer his questions, and not steal anything. At the end of the visit, the host guest friend gave his guest a valuable parting gift, like a sword or a gold cup. The gift acted as a material token of their bond of close friendship, given to ensure that whenever he visited the demos of his friend, he would receive in return the same protection, hospitality, and a gift of at least the same worth. Zeus guaranteed that this protocol was adhered to by punishing any violators, which drove many myths, like the Trojan War. When Paris came to Sparta to visit Menelaus, he violated Exenia by stealing his wife, Helen. Exenia was an indispensable device for foreign relations in the Dark Age. For when a stranger came to another demos, he had no rights and he could be mistreated and even killed. Xenia would continue in a somewhat different form as a means of diplomatic relations into the historical period. The Iliad and the Odyssey also portray the ethics and social values that emerged from the post-Mycenaean society. Like all societies, the notions of good and bad right and wrong, are largely shaped by their own conditions of life. With that being said, the codes of behavior for Homeric males center on war. The Greek adjective for good, agathos, when used of men in Homer, is almost always describing the qualities of bravery and skill in fighting. Oppositely, 
The word for bad, kakos, means cowardly or unskilled or useless in battle. In a society where every man was expected to defend his community, all men were under societal pressures to be brave, and the leaders were expected to be especially valiant. Men also were expected to honor the gods, keep promises and oaths, be loyal to their fellow warriors, exhibit self-control, be hospitable, and respect women and elders. To those within their community, at least. Paradoxically, Homeric Greeks are savages towards others, as they loot and burn captured villages, slaughter the male survivors, including infants, and rape and enslave the women and girls. At the core of the Homeric values was erate, which is best translated as either virtue or excellence. The word derives from anir, meaning man, and it refers to masculine qualities of courage in battle, strength, athletic prowess, and rhetoric. In the Iliad, Achilles represents physical courage. But on the other hand, Odysseus was wise and used his skill of speech to achieve his means. Both were held with high esteem. The highest reward an individual could receive was recognition by his fellow man for his masculine qualities. A strong competitive spirit was an important part of the Greek male ethos. Homeric characters constantly compare themselves, or are compared with, one another. They are driven to win and be called the best, Aristos. One man is said to be the best in bowmanship, while another surpassed all the young men in running, or in spear throwing, chariot racing, speaking, and so forth. When one is at his very best, a condition called aristeia, they take on a kind of superhuman power. For instance, when Achilles fights the river god Scamander, because he's so far beyond himself that he transcends the natural world, such heroic deeds can only occur through contests or struggles, called a gone. The search for honor, called timae, was at the root of why men fought, because the thing they prize most is their honor, for which they are fully prepared to die. This is the reasoning behind the wrath of Achilles. The point is that Agamemnon has taken away from Achilles the prize given to him as a symbol of his honor, and taken it for himself. This heroic ethic spurred men to accomplish great things and kept the quality of leadership high, but on the other hand the relentless pursuit of honor and obsession with avenging dishonor could cause enormous political instability. Furthermore, this was a society striving for kleos, or glory or renowned fame, and avoiding ados, or shame, because how you were treated and greeted showed your worth. Kleos is related to the word kleon, which means to hear, and carries the implied meaning of what others hear about you. A Greek hero earns kleos through accomplishing great deeds, often through his own death. Likewise, if he failed to live up to this code of erete, he would be disgraced in the eyes of the others and bring Ados on himself. Achilles is practically immortal and could live forever if he doesn't go to fight at Troy. When he is asked why he came to fight, when he knows that he will die, he responds that he came because he wants to be the very best, and his deeds here would last forever. Odysseus also was given the option of living forever by Calypso when he was shipwrecked on her island, but he refuses. He has to get back to Ithaca because his wife, son, and kingdom are all waiting for him. If he chose to live forever on this island, he wouldn't be able to enjoy the honor and respect that he would receive when he returned to Ithaca as a war hero, a critical part of his sense of self and his legacy. Likewise, when Hector says goodbye to his wife Andromache, before his battle with Achilles, she pleads him not to risk his life. Although he knows that he will die and Troy will be destroyed in the end, and the thought of his wife's enslavement by the Greeks when that happens causes him more grief than anything else, he knows he must fight Achilles. He'd rather die than be thought of as a coward and dishonor his name. Cleos also was transferred from father to son, and the son was responsible for building upon the Cleos of his father. 
For instance, Telemachus was worried that he may have been deprived of Cleos, believing that his father may have died a mundane death at sea, rather than a reputable and glorious one in battle. Although the emphasis is so strongly on the central aristocratic heroes, we do find in the Odyssey some glimpses of the others. There are the women servants in the palace of Odysseus. One of these is Oriclia, his old wet nurse, who sees through Odysseus's disguise when she recognizes an old scar. Then there is Umaeus, the swineherd, who has remained loyal to Odysseus and continued to look after his pigs in the countryside, living a life by no means that was easy as Odysseus himself came to realize when he sheltered with him on his return to Ithaca. Besides these members of the royal household, Homer mentions bards, craftsmen, Phoenician merchants, hired laborers, and free peasants. The Iliad is a predominantly male poem. Women do appear, but usually as tokens to be exchanged, like Helen, Chryseis, and Briseis. The Odyssey has a different tone. However, there is little trace in Homer of the misogyny that often appears in later Greek literature. Women are not treated with contempt, and they also appear to have more social freedom than those of later periods. Women go freely about the village and countryside and participate in festivals and religious events. Although they have no political voice, they are still a part of the public opinion. Those of the nobility join the company of their husbands and other men in the great hall after supper and take part in the conversation. The wife of Abasileus is held in high esteem and may even partake in her husband's authority, as does Arete of the Phaeacians in the Odyssey. The pursuit of excellence was not just for warriors in the Homeric poems, but also of the socially elite women. This comes mostly to the fore in the character of Penelope, the wife of Odysseus. As she tries to preserve her household and property during her husband's long absence by relying on her intelligence, social status, and intense fidelity to her husband. She cunningly outwits the suitors with her burial shroud trick that we mentioned before. When Odysseus finally returns to Ithaca, disguised as a wandering beggar, Penelope treated him, being a stranger, with kindness and dignity owed to any and all visitors according to Greek custom, in contrast to the rude treatment he received from the female in charge of the slaves. Odysseus says that her kleos reaches to the heavens like that of a king who respects the gods and upholds justice. Although Penelope clearly counts as an exceptional figure of literature, the idea that she is praised in a manner fitting for a man of surpassing virtue and achievement demonstrates that the society of Dark Age Greece expected as much from women as from men and entitled them to some level of recognition or dishonor. However, as is normally the case in ancient societies, the qualities that define a good woman in Homer are circumscribed by their domestic duties as a housewife and mother. Women are honored for their beauty, skill, and diligence in weaving, careful household management, and good practical sense. Like men, women are also compared with one another, although only within the few areas allowed to them. They are expected to act modestly in public and in the company of men, and above all to be chaste. Although men are permitted to have concubines, adulterous women bring great disgrace and dishonor upon themselves and their families. As in later Greece, Women are under the strict control of their male relatives and husbands from birth to death. They are the most valuable prizes of raids and war, not only because of their intrinsic value as workers or concubines, or as goods to be bartered or given away, but also because capturing an enemy's mother, wife, daughter, or sister is the ultimate insult. Homer is telling a story, not writing a history book, and the use of his poems as historical documents must therefore be cautious. Regardless, Homer was considered by later Greeks as being crucial to the development of Greek culture. 
His poems essentially became the Bible for later Greeks, who tried to mirror the ethics and values demonstrated by the Homeric heroes. These epic poems provided a source of knowledge and wisdom, and memorizing Homer was the standard source of education in the Greek world. In fact, he is referred to by Plato as the first teacher. He was referenced in subsequent works of history, philosophy, tragedy, and even comedy. Homer's works, which are about 50% speeches, provided models and persuasive speaking and writing that were emulated throughout the Greek world. Greek artists and writers turned to Homer for their subjects and inspiration. These poems also were quoted to settle moral questions and were used for political purposes also, as later Greeks made some decisions about who had rights to what land based on what is said in the Iliad. Furthermore, later Greeks were inspired to achieve the great deeds and fame of the Homeric heroes. When Alexander the Great went out to conquer the Persian Empire, for instance, he carried with him a copy of the Iliad, which he allegedly put under his pillow at night. Books in those days were not likely to be codices as they are today, but scrolls that took up quite a lot of space. Whether the story is true or not, the principle is established. He was another Achilles in his own eyes, and it was for him to achieve such great deeds. For better or worse, the Homeric codes of male behavior would endure throughout antiquity. The Iliad and the Odyssey are, in effect, the first literature of Western civilization. Many would claim that they are still the finest. On the next episode, the first embers of Greek resurgence began to smolder, as contact with the Near East is reawakened with the rise of the Phoenicians. An international trade network is reestablished, and writing comes back to Greece, ultimately leading to the lights coming back on and the end of the Dark Age. So tune in next time on the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 9, Greek Resurgence. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist, Michael Levy, for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Paeon, from his album, The Ancient Greek Liar. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.